1: Hello and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? On today's show, Britain's in recession and no one seems to think the autumn statement will get us out of it. How is the downturn hitting younger people who've never experienced recession before? Meanwhile, there's loose talk of rejoining the single market and Nigel Farage wants to put a stop to it. Is the far right still a threat? And as Nadine Doris starts work on the definitive bio of Boris Johnson, we chat about the best and worst political biographies. Aisha Hazarika is a Times Radio host and former Labour spin doctor. Hello, Aisha. Hello, hello. On Wednesday morning, the Supreme Court is going to rule on whether Scotland can hold another independence referendum without Westminster's approval. But the court, it turns out, may refuse to rule at all. Where would that leave Nicola Sturgeon? Well, this
2: whole thing has been very interesting. Um, a lot of people that I've spoken to who are reasonably close to the process up in Edinburgh have felt that the court will probably rule that the Scottish government doesn't have the power to to hold a, a referendum by themselves, that that is still within the preserve of, of the power of, of Westminster, but that it, this is a tactic for Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP to show that they are, you know, they're willing to explore every kind of reasonable option and check out every legal avenue to look like they've been as reasonable as possible. If the decision is a negative one for the SNP, then I think they will use that as more grist to their mill that, you know, the elite in Westminster just doesn't understand what the Scottish people want. All of that is contested. It's still very much 50-50. They do quite like having something to rail against. And of course, there is that sort of nuclear option still on the table, which is that if Holyrood is denied the ability, then they will make the next election a kind of de facto referendum on Scottish independence. But ultimately, that still doesn't really help them if Westminster still says no. And you know Keir Starmer hasn't put it very clearly on the record that if he wins the next election, he is not going to grant
1: the SNP um, a referendum either. So in that case, Nicola Sturgeon would have to basically go ahead and organise her own referendum in defiance of Westminster. I mean, is that really possible?
2: Well, it's very difficult. A sort of wildcat referendum. I think she will be under a lot of pressure to do that. But I do think there is a big division amongst senior SNP strategists about whether that's the right thing to do. I think people feel that that is a bit, you know, over the top to to do that. If you start having wildcat referendums on everything, then you know you're slightly off to the wacky races from a kind of political point of view. Everybody could just start having referendums on on everything, and we know that referendums don't always work out that well for uh, peaceful, happy, calm societies.
1: Yeah, we could turn into California. Thanks. Marie LeConte is a freelance political journalist and author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hello, Marie. Hello. England have backed down and they won't wear their one-love armbands on the pitch in Qatar. Um, Is this pragmatic or is it just pathetic?
3: Oh, it's... Absolutely pathetic, and especially I think in the context of in the same day the Iranian football team refusing to sing the national anthem, and they will almost certainly get in so much trouble for this. It is such a powerful stand to take. Um, so no, I think you know it's made the England team and uh, the FA look incredibly silly, and also I think. You know, what What they seemingly miss is that that's kind of the point of a protest. You do something and it carries some risk, but you do it anyway because that's an issue you care about. So, no, I mean, it, it's been infuriating. So I was um, boycotting uh, the World Cup anyway, but I feel like I'm just boycotting it that bit more now.
1: You're not even watching it, you know, in the privacy of your, your own home secretly on a laptop?
3: No, I've considered doing that, but no. no. Also, I'm, I'm more of a pub watcher anyway, so no.
1: And the comedian Joe Lycett promised to shred 10 grand of his money if David Beckham didn't break his sponsorship deal with Qatar and Beckham didn't do that and Lycett pretended to shred it and then it turned out he hadn't and he you know he hadn't really shredded it at all and he donated the money to charity and speaking as someone who struggles to understand football at the best of times I mean this is has Lycett's strategy worked here
3: um, I think it has. So I, I would say my maybe controversial opinion is that I was actually quite disappointed to hear that he'd not shredded the money. Like I, I like the idea of going full KLF style and being like, no, you know, fuck it. And that's that. Um, but, no, but, but, you know, I think it worked because it got an incredible amount of publicity. And I think that also targeting individuals for hypocrisy is just quite a good thing to do because if you just kind of say, oh well, you know, people who care about football or the FA or the teams, etc., like fine. But actually really picking, I think, specific people who are being paid by Qatar and saying, what are you doing, man? That like, what is this? Um, I think is just quite a good uh, thing to do. So I think yeah David Beckham's image I think has definitely been harmed by this and that's good. <laughs>
1: Our guest today is Director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and Professor of Politics at King's College London. Rosie Campbell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're sharing a panel with the former Australian PM Julia Gillard tomorrow, and I think she's also your boss.
4: Um, which female leaders do you talk about the most with your students? Oh, well, I mean, given the boss is Julia Gillard, she comes up rather a lot. Um, but I mean, uh, I'm not of the opinion that women leaders are different from men leaders. We just need more of them. But of course, we have been um, talking about, say, Jacinda Ardern and the way that she's um, governed in the last few years. Um, and we do talk a little bit about how, on average, men and women sometimes adopt different leadership styles. But we're all about saying that we're, we're challenging any essentialist assumptions that men and women are different.
1: There was quite a lot of research during the pandemic about women leaders and their different approach to COVID. Did that stand up? Well, if you dig
4: into it, I think what was going on is actually, you know, there are very few women leaders around the world, about 13%. And there are some very toxic male leaders, a small minority who deliberately adopt a hyper masculine style. Think Bolsonaro, think Trump, think Putin. They're very visible. And we tend to cast, contrast them against the Jacindra Derns. Actually, there are a lot of men who operate somewhere in the middle who don't. I think it's a deliberate performance of hypermasculinity rather than anything innate about being a man or a woman. Um, so no, yes, there are some. There were some men who behave really badly, but actually, it doesn't wash out when you when you really dig into the data. Interesting.
1: The autumn statement was just as miserable as everyone was expecting, with higher taxes for everyone and plenty of cuts too, a lot of which have been conveniently pushed back to 2025, when the Conservative Party may well no longer have to make them. The Office of Budget Responsibility predicted a fall in income per person of 7% over the next two years, which will take us back to 2014. Marie, if we don't count the COVID contraction, which was obviously weird and exceptional and other things going on, this is the first time you all have experienced a recession in your working life, isn't it? Yay! Have... Yeah, yeah, it was the first time for everything. How do you think younger millennials and uh, Gen Z are handling this?
3: Well, I, hmm, I'm probably going to be very cynical and depressing here, but... You know, fine, it is, it is true to say that, you know, we, we've not experienced, I was born in 91, so this is my, my my first recession, baby's first recession. But that being said, you know, I would say that, you know, since I entered the workforce, the economy has never really thrived. You know, it, it's not quite a case of everything was all dandy and now, oh, no. No you know, it is not like the party in power has at any point in my working life cared about young workers and young people and young professionals. So again, so I think that this is not really coming from a perspective of like, oh gosh, we had it so good and now we're going to have to readjust. So I think, you know, it's not quite a shock in that sense. So yes, I'm, I'm not even entirely sure what to tell you. I think I've just become quite nihilistic and I think that that's generally the same among my friendship group of things suck and things will not get better. And I think one point actually which... Uh, there was quite a lot of debate about on Twitter last week. Was um, the triple lock on pensions? Where actually quite a lot of millennial, you know, commentators made the point that it should not stay, and actually that's not fair. And with slightly older people mostly saying, "But hang on, you know, you you will retire eventually. This is good. This is good for your 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 own futures." And basically, all of us saying what retirement? Uh, We all know either we'll be dead or we'll keep working until we're very old and then just about dying, or somehow they will stop when it's our turn. I I think there's just such pessimism now among people under about, you know, 35.
1: Yeah, I saw a prediction that there's going to be some sort of recommendation coming up shortly that will mean that people your age will be waiting until they're 75 and people, even my age, will be waiting until we're 70, which was (laughs) cheerful. See,
3: but that's fine because my retirement plan is to be rich or dead. Um, so I'll, I'll be okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's the the optimum. Speaking to people, you know, as you say in the, your own friendship group, what kind of things are they cutting back on
3: first? Well, so I think what I think the timing of this has been quite interesting because um, because um, you know, for all the obvious reasons, uh, people were not going out during the national lockdowns, um, and I think that. You know, quite a lot of people got used after that to actually going out quite a lot less or if they do, you know, only going out a couple of times a week or going to people's houses or just going to the park in the summer, etc. I think it will be again, yeah, people kind of staying in, which is a massive problem. We're seeing already, you know, there's lots of stories um, at the moment about restaurants closing all over London, pubs closing as well. So I think hospitality is about to really take a battering. It
1: feels like it's about twice as expensive to go out as it used to be in terms of tickets and in terms of.
3: It's yeah, I uh, which I have complained about already on Twitter, but I will do it uh, here as well. Last week, I went to a pub in the depths of Zone Two as well. Not even a pub in like you know Leicester Square, and I paid eight pounds fifty for a single vodka and tonic, um, and I nearly cried. <laughs>
1: It was probably a very high-end tonic, though, wasn't it? You know, that quality tonic, not that cheap. I, I
3: stuff. can't tell the difference. I smoked <laughs> no, I for, can't. like, over a decade. I have no taste
1: buds. <laughs> I know, it's just like sometimes, because I'm completely off the booze now, because I'm trying to finish my book, I just order the tonic, and people look at me, look at me like I'm mad, but it's really cheap, and it's great. <laughs> anyway, Rosie, does this feel different from the 2008 recession to you? Because you and I will remember that.
4: It does It does feel very different to me. Um, I mean, it, it, oh, yes, it does feel different. I mean, obviously, we... we have just come from this period of um covid um i think one of the difficulties is that we are coming into this recession from a very low base already so you know we're coming into a recession where we've already had a, a significant period of austerity and spending cuts and we've seen the gaps between rich and poor widening so i think um 2008 was horrific but i'm i'm concerned that this crisis is coming at the tail end of a long period of extreme economic difficulty and we didn't have the inflation back then of course did we so no, no. Three different
1: yeah and the autumn statement was supposed to reassure us that we're in safe hands even if
4: things feel very bad do you think do you think it achieved that I think I mean, I really try as an academic, I don't really want to be political. But I have been following very closely what John Curtis says, because, you know, he really is the expert on all things voting behaviour. And I'm pretty convinced by what he says that, you know, the, the Conservative Party, it gets into power for perceived economic confidence and he thinks that what's happened recently um, with the trust Quarting mini budget is um, akin to Black Wednesday, which I just about remember um, when we dropped out of the um, European Exchange Rate Mechanism. Basically, our currency we were we were in a, a similar debacle, and the Conservatives that reputational damage was lasted a very long time. And I I can't see how this budget can can help remedy the extent of that damage. So labour shortages
1: are one of the biggest problems in Britain at the moment, and especially in jobs that women traditionally do, things like nursing and hospitality and care work. Is the government doing
4: anything to make it easier for women to work at the moment? Well, actually, sort of the opposite. I mean, I think at the moment there are something like four and a half million women who are finding that they can't work when they want to because they can't access any childcare or suitable childcare. I don't think childcare was mentioned in Jeremy Hunt's statement. Um, To me, care, childcare's core infrastructure, it's just a basic thing we need in a modern society. Um, And for it not to be seriously on the agenda, oh, just it's incredibly frustrating.
1: Aisha, was there anything at all to welcome in Thursday's statement? Well I think the
2: first thing is that you know whatever you think about Jeremy Hunt he is a marked improvement than the uh, you know to the absolute kind of you know clown car that went before him I mean just the contrast in the last sort of you know nine weeks of British politics when you know nine and a half you know eight sort of nine weeks ago we had quasi quartem just announcing £45 billion worth of unfunded tax cuts. I mean, it was just absolutely insane. It was like looking at the Joker being at the dispatch box. Even the most right-wing commentators were like, what? So it's extraordinary that here we are, you know, eight, nine weeks later and you have Jeremy Hunt announcing £55 billion of tax rises and spending cuts. But tone matters in politics, right? Politics is the art of communication, probably the only positive was that the markets at least were going to be reassured after the absolute bin fire that had happened eight weeks beforehand. Now, there were a couple of things which I think even the left and people on the left would say were a good thing. The fact that benefits were uprated in line with inflation, the fact that I mean, I know Maria and I might have a different view on the pensions trip a lot, but, you know, there are some pensioners who are really, really wealthy. There are many, many pensioners who do do absolutely live on the the breadline in in Britain. And the fact that the national minimum wage was uprated as well, um, although, of course, all of that stuff isn't happening until April. In terms of spending, it was good that there was a bit more money for the NHS for social care. And Schools was interesting because nobody expected any more money for schools, even though schools really, really needed it. I interviewed um, an educational leader from one of the trade unions who said that he felt that schools were moving up the political agenda and they hadn't been there for quite um, a long time. So that is probably the only bit of good news that you could take from it. I suppose the only other tiny bit, it's not really good news, was that no spending cuts are going to happen now because it's just impossible. Most services are already on their knees. Any spending cuts are going to come down the track. There may well be, we hope, a new government which will take a different view on those cuts. What was interesting is listening and hearing about a phrase that was being used in the Treasury around the autumn statement and about the managing of it. And the phrase was, pain today for half a hope for tomorrow. And I think that's what um, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak are hoping for. They're kind of hoping to be lucky generals. I think they're hoping... That you know by seeming like the grown ups, and they are the grown ups compared to the absolute idiots that that were in government b- b- beforehand. Um, Rosie, I'll be interested to know in your women's leadership, are you doing a large section on the triumph that was Liz Truss? I wonder. <laughs> but you know, I don't think it is going to um, work for them. That they're hoping that you know they can stabilize things. And come the next general election, there will be a turnaround in the economic fortune. They're hoping that the war in Ukraine will be resolved, that inflation will start to come down, that growth may start to go up. If you look at some of the OBR figures, they're hoping that that might happen. But I think to pray and aid John Curtis again, I spoke to him over the weekend, this isn't really cutting through with the public. The public are not stupid. The public know that they are going to be a lot poorer. Everybody is going to be a lot poorer. It's the highest tax take since World War II. The the Times crunched some of the numbers and found that middle-income families are going to be paying an extra £20,000 over the next six years. They are core Tory voters. They are the kind of swing voters that the Tories brought over at the last general election and they desperately need to keep. So it is not going to give them even a quarter of a bit of hope for next time round, I don't think.
1: What did you think of Rachel Reeves's response for Labour, the shadow chancellor? I think
2: Rachel Reeves had a really excellent outing at the dispatch box. It's often a really difficult job for the shadow Chancellor to respond to something like this. They don't get um, huge amounts of advance warning. It's often what they see that's been briefed into the paper. So a lot of it is her having to kind of respond on her feet. And I think we really saw how skilled and how experienced Rachel Reeves is. People forget she also is a Bank of England economist. You know, that was a job that she did. She also worked in retail banking. So she does really, really know her stuff. And I thought the political attack lines were very very strong. Um, in fact, the old black cab driver test. I was in a black cab a couple of nights ago, and actually, the black cab driver said to me, "The person that is the most impressive person in politics right now is that woman from the Labour Party that absolutely gave it to Jeremy Hunt at the dispatch box." And obviously, the difficulty for Labour is going to be that a lot of these cuts are deferred until possibly when Labour wins the election. I mean, some people are calling this a great trap by Jeremy Hunt. Others see it as an admission that they're not going to win the next general election. And it's like, well, over to you, Labour. What is going to be tricky for Labour in the next two years is Labour is doing really well on the economy right now, which is unheard of for the Labour Party. That's a very, very unusual and important place for the Labour Party to be. And they have to show that they are going to be absolutely rigorous in terms of their fiscal discipline. Having said that, they can't just be the same as the Tories. Otherwise, what is the point of the Labour Party? It is not going to be easy for the Labour Party to sort of, you know, tread this path on the economy for the next two years.
1: Rosie, your profession is one of the ones that is striking later this autumn. There are going to be lecturers going on strike in universities. And in fact, your former employer, Birkbeck, is making lots of redundancies. How is the, uh,
4: how is the recession feeling for universities? well i it's it's going to be a problem for universities on, on multiple levels i mean i think this is something that another thing that labor will inherit because you know the the, the university finance the fees have been capped for the last six, seven years. And of course, now we've got massive inflation. Universities are very dependent on overseas students, which you know we know that there are some issues around overseas students accessing higher education. There's a huge issue, particularly at Birkbeck, my former employer. I was there for 15 years and I absolutely loved working at Birkbeck. It's you know all part time um, study in the evening. I taught so many people who were already working in the civil service, in politics, in NGOs and people who went on to work in those places. And the funding of part-time higher education has really become problematic. So, I mean, there are so many issues. But, of course, we don't necessarily want students to take on the burden of this cost. We really need to stop and rethink student finance. So that's another area where there's another problem for the next government to inherit. Um, And and whether we can keep staggering on as we are, I don't know.
1: (laughs) What's going through Tory MPs' minds right now, do you think? You have unique insight, I think, into disaffected MPs' thoughts.
3: Um, well so the thing I, I keep thinking about I, I can't remember who tweeted it annoyingly but someone was like you know list Trust was effectively the political equivalent of standing outside your house in the winter naked so you can come back in and the house feels warm <laughs> um, and 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 you know and I think that's basically what's going on at the moment so there does seem to be a level of relief I think of okay well you know the house is no longer actively on fire to mix my metaphors so I think it's mostly that but but again you know I, I'm yet to talk to anyone who sort of actively thrilled about, you know, the autumn statement or anything really that the Sunak government is doing.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Much excitement over the weekend as senior tourists, that's all we know about who they are unfortunately, briefed the Sunday Times that maybe Britain should rejoin the single market. This crazy idea was quickly stamped upon by the Health Secretary Steve Barclay and Rishi Sunak has told the CBI that it isn't going to happen. Someone from the European Research Group said they'd go berserk if we got a deal like Switzerland's. So we can only really imagine what that would look like. They've always been so rational before. Aisha, what's going on here? Who are these senior Tories? It's a very, very good question and one that I was pondering
2: uh, myself over the weekend. Um, I mean, look, the Sunday Times political team doesn't just, you know, come up with something and put it on the the front page. Their stories tend to be very uh, well sourced. And I just have to say that there's a strong history of the Sunday Times putting stuff on the front pages, everybody denying it, and then it comes to pass like a couple of months. And we did see, you know, Jeremy Hunt say that they definitely would like to increase trade with, with Europe, have a, a better relationship with Europe, have more frictionless trade with with Europe. Um, I know everyone's eyes are rolling at this point. We're seeing this interesting thawing of relations and a sort of burgeoning bromance between Sunak and Macron. It's really interesting. When Sunak won, the first... Do you know what? I immediately saw the optic of him... Trudeau and Macron on the world stage, like the sort of boy <laughs> band, you know, and, and and of course it came to pass, you know, he's been having a lovely time with Macron and, and Trudeau on, on the world stage. So I think there's definitely much more of a sort of cultural alignment um, with sort of Sunak and, and Hunt, um, even though Sunak was a, a Brexiteer. But it is interesting that they are trying to sort of um, stamp all over this idea. We had Rishi Sunak, you know, saying at the CBI conference, no, no, no. I cannot see a world in which we do something involving a Swiss-style deal, partly because of the freedom of movement aspect. I just cannot see that happening not even Labour is is saying we should be you know going back to freedom of movement and I know lots of people be shouting at the radio or shouting into their headphones at the moment or sh- grimacing on the tube listening to this but unfortunately that is where the sort of political positioning is. It's also interesting that this Swiss um, relationship that people have been talking about it's not quite going as well as everybody thinks it is because you know the, the Swiss have walked away from um, some of the uh, negotiations with, with the EU and quite a few of the bilaterals are, are kind of in a period of eroding. So I'm not quite sure why that was, I mean, I think that's a bit of an out-of-date metaphor that that was used. What is going to be interesting, I think, is just this change in body language between senior members of our government and particularly um, the French and other you know leading figures in the EU. I don't think there will be this cartoonish, oh, you know, we've got to sort of set them up as the, the pantomime villain of the piece all the time. I think we're probably going to see a slightly more sophisticated relationship. Obviously, this doesn't include Suella Braverman on, on, on any count, but I think certainly from Rishi Sunak and from um, Jeremy Hunt, I think we're going to see a change in body language and and
1: tone. And I think that is going to be quite interesting. Marie, I don't know if I'm just too Machiavellian about this, but I, I have to say I thought this was just a ploy to distract Tory MPs from the autumn statement and just throw them a bit of fresh meat to get them going again and, you know, get their minds off the hell of the autumn statement. Is that su- uh, cynical of me?
3: Um, well, so I, I will start by saying that actually the rumour I have heard from quite good sources today um, is that. A certain Jeremy Hunt may be behind uh, some of the briefings around that, which I found quite interesting. So I think that actually it is possible you're being too cynical and that's a case of the man in charge of the finances has gone Oh, no, the finances, <laughs> what can we do to them? They're bleeding heavily. Um, and actually, you know, having a closer relationship with the European Union uh, would be a good way to do this. But, but you know, with that being said, I think the problem is that is not going to happen. Again, you know, you have uh, a, an intake of, you know, and be that the ones, the, the Tory MPs were first elected in 2019 and the other ones, like, right? that is... The, the Brexiteer conservative party so obviously you know i i do think on a personal note it would be a good idea for britain to have a closer relationship with the eu but you can't do it this parliament i like you very obviously cannot do it this parliament and i think you know you could not even necessarily rely on labor votes because i think that keir starmer frustratingly but not entirely unreasonably does not want to be seen as Captain Romain again. So, so you know, whoever really is behind this, um, you know, I I do think it's a genuine thing as opposed to a ploy. I'm not convinced is going to get anywhere.
1: No, I have to agree. It does look like it's for the birds. I mean, single market definitely. I, I can maybe see us joining the customs union. You know, just to get a bit of a taste of what free trade was like <laughs> again. But it does seem unlikely. And Nigel Farage inevitably had views. If we're headed towards a Swiss-style deal, which means alignment with EU rules, which means effectively our trade deals with the rest of the world being governed by that set of the rules, hindered by that set of the rules, if it means paying contributions and effectively agreeing to free movement, then let me promise you something. What happened in 2019 will happen again. They will literally get obliterated at the next general election and deserve to do so. Getting back involved in active politics is not on my bucket list. It's not what I want to do. But I simply couldn't stand aside and do nothing if this act of betrayal continues. So please, if you are conservative, take this as a warning. No, sorry, a threat. You will be obliterated if you continue down this route. Rosie, the Reform Party, which was originally the Brexit Party and of course led by Farage at that time, is polling at 5%. And the leader Richard Tice claims the single market story led to a surge in people joining at the weekend. Now the Conservatives have embraced, you know, sensible te- technocracy again. Do you think a far-right party could break through in the UK?
0: Um <laughs>
4: I mean, obviously we've had moments when the Brexit Party did incredibly well, you know, in those last European elections. I personally don't think now is the right moment. I think um I think maybe I have I mean, maybe this is ridiculous, but I have a slightly even more cynical view about what Jeremy Hunt might be doing and signalling, is if you look at the long-term trajectory for the Conservative Party, I mean, recent polling saying that about 56% of the British population thinks that leaving the EU was a mistake, 32% think it was right. When, When we voted to leave the EU most people were not voting for the hardest of hard brexits and you know it's it's the it's Nigel Farage and the and the ERG that have created that environment and if is it possible that Jeremy Hunt is imagining a rebirth of the Conservative Party in five ten years with him at the helm I mean I I can (laughs) I'm seeing a lot of head shaking but I think in the long term if the Conservative Party keeps going down this track of at least there are parts factions within the party that very, very heavily um, anti-immigration, very heavily anti-European Union, this anti-woke agenda that some parts are igniting. If you look at the demographic of voters... Um, age has now become the biggest predictor of party support with younger people which you know I think all of us fall into under 50 we're all young are um, more likely to vote Labour in the last two elections a massive gender gap for the first time ever in the whole period that we've got data since the second world war a greater proportion of women voted Labour in 17 and 19 than men and also the demographic change in terms of people from ethnic minority backgrounds moving out of urban centres and changing some of the blue wall. Yes, maybe in the very, very short term, some of these policies can be attractive, but that demographic is declining in society. That demographic that the ref- that reform is going to target is not the one that you would go after if you're wanting to have a vision for 5, 10, 15 years. So that's my that's my take. So you think Brexit has lost its rallying power for the far right? If you look back at the statistics, the people who, for whom, you, at relations to the EU, were the most important issue. If you go back twenty years ago, it was middle, it was men over fifty, and then what happened is it became, as we got, you know, became politicized. But the people who were really passionate, rather than who just voted to leave, the ones who really fervently felt. Um, anti-EU. We're still that same group. And we've got this polarisation across generations in society that's moving in one direction. Um, so my personal view is that you know Nigel Farage and his ilk can keep creating tensions and polarisation among generations in politics, but it's going to be a losing game. So that's the expert view. But do Tory MPs feel that way, Marie?
1: Um, how worried are they uh, do they have this visceral fear of a Farage comeback and what it could do to them?
3: So I think what's been quite interesting, and I feel like I've mentioned it on a previous episode of the podcast, I think after a Conservative Party conference, is that at Conservative Party conference, the spectre of a kind of party to the right of the Tories and more Brexity than the Tories kept floating around. And it was kind of weird because I did one panel where, you know, I had to be the one saying, guys, that, what, what are you? Like, I'm the one non-Tory on this panel and I'm the one saying, chill out, like, you know, what, what are you talking about? And actually, and that's come up at several sort of events and other conferences I've been to since then. So it's clearly something that has been talked about a lot. So I know that more in common, the firm that's doing lots of the polling and focus groups at the moment uh, has done a lot of work on actually, you know, would British people vote for a populist party? So clearly it's kind of in the water. So I think, hmm, there's probably a point of actually for quite a lot of MPs at the moment, especially looking at the Red Wall, etc. You would not even need a reform party or similar to do even that well, really, to actually make, you know, make just about enough uh, Tory MPs lose their seats, I think. So you would only need Farage to, let's say, fine, you know, we will just target, I know, between seven and 12 seats and that's it. And they'll get between five and 10 percent of the vote in all of them. Well, you know, that that would do it. So, So I can sort of see it, I think. Yeah, I, I can sort of see where they're coming from, but not entirely.
1: But what would a far-right party have to offer voters in order to cut through? Because at the moment, reform is promising the world. I mean, End to waiting lists. Just, you know. End
3: <laughs> that's <laughs> not, I feel like no one had come up with that. I think that was actually really clever of them.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, tax cuts, obviously. I mean, do, do people believe that stuff after the Liz Truss experience?
3: Uh, that's a really good point, actually, I think. I'm, I'm not convinced you can quite do... Cacism anymore um what can they feasibly so i think brexit and immigration worked quite well in tandem but i think that's kind of the problem so i think immigration could be really weaponized um by uh by the far right and by kind of you know populist um before brexit because it it could be a case of well you know we have this great enemy that is the european union and if we leave then we can solve this problem which is again in itself cakeism. Um, as has now been revealed, because, you know, guess what? There's still a refugee crisis, which arguably has got worse since uh, since the Brexit vote and since Britain left the European Union. So again, so h- how do you make that, you know, quite simplistic argument? Like, fine, it is true, with it. I think, that, you know, especially people on the right are really quite angry and feel quite passionately about immigration, about the refugee crisis at the moment, um, but... Well, you know, what, there's already Suella Braverman as Home Secretary. Um, you know, what, what, what's their angle there? What can they feasibly offer? You know, I, I agree. Again, I, I can't really think of a, a platform, a thing, an issue uh, that they could really um, use to gain some traction. Aisha, is Labour at all worried
1: about the far right and the threat from
3: reform? Because we see
1: big, big Labour leads in the polls, which, you know, Sunak hasn't really had much of a honeymoon. How solid are those leads, though? So I think um, the leads
2: will definitely narrow. Remember, Ed Miliband had a great uh, poll lead over the Conservative Party. And In fact, on the day of the election, we were briefing out to political editors that um, there would be Labour would be the biggest party, and, and political editors were like, "Yeah, absolutely, Labour's on track to be the biggest party." So, um, always take polls with a, a, a not even a pinch of salt, a bit of a salt mountain um, when it comes, particularly when it comes to Labour leads. It's interesting. I had a very Long chat with Richard Tice on my show on Sunday. And what was interesting is that they are actually not going to target where they're going to stand. They are going to field candidates all over the country, apart from Northern Ireland. I think it's kind of easy to scoff at them and say, oh God, they're an absolute busted flush. But just remember, as much as it pains me to say this, the most successful individual political figure of the last 20 years has been Nigel Farage in terms of getting the one thing that he wanted, which is meted out, you know, absolute hell on this country. He is a very powerful and persuasive communicator. And the fact that he's sort of been away from frontline politics for a while, if he does decide to enter the free, I think that does cause problems. It doesn't cause problems for the Labour Party, though. If anything, it's a massive benefit for the Labour Party where the reform, where the Brexit party stood at the last general election, if they hadn't stood, Yvette Cooper would have lost her seat. Ed Miliband would have lost his seat. So obviously Labour is a mu- in a much stronger position now than it was in, in 2019. And I did say to, to Richard Tice, look, if you stand, you're not going to be damaging the Labour party, you are going to be damaging the other right-wing party. You're probably closer to the Conservatives than you are to the Labour party. And he said, I don't care. I want to be driving as many nails into the coffin of the Tory party. And I was like, are you seriously saying you would rather have a more left wing prime minister than a conservative prime minister? And he said, yes, that is how much we hate the Tory party. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what reform does. If Nigel Farage comes back into play, I think that's just more bad news for the Conservative party.
1: Marie, let's look over the channel, because in France, Emmanuel Macron's disapproval rating has been holding pretty steady all year, about 59%. <laughs> and Marine Le Pen's party, the Rassemblement National, has a new leader. How is the party doing since he took over?
3: Uh, oh, God. Well, I mean, the, the first thing I do have to say is that Jordan Bardella is not only younger than me, he's also younger than my little brother, uh, Which is just absolutely harrowing. I mean, I did send him a message being like, look at you, you're finishing your Masters. You could be the leader of the France's far-right party. Um, No, but to be fair, it's kind of a, you know, it it, it is not actually a massive, massive change. Obviously, it is in the sense that he is the first non-Le Pen person uh, to be the leader of the party. But really, you know, A, he was a massive protégé of Marine Le Pen anyway. So, you know, there's no great change in policy there. But B, I think the main thing that happened is that suddenly the Rassemblement National got many, many MPs uh, in the National Assembly and including Marine Le Pen, and she basically wants to be able to focus her efforts on being there and doing that and preparing, she says, for her next run. And the idea, you know, internally in the party as well is that she will be the candidate at the next election because we just cannot get rid of her. Um so yes, yeah, so I think in that sense it's not it's not quite been a political earthquake. Although it is quite interesting. I think the one thing to point out is that, you know, he he is from, I believe, the poorest uh, département of uh, France, which is quite a market change from Marine Le Pen, who grew up very much in a, in a world surrounded by money. Um, but yeah, no, apart from that, I think it, it's still quite a lot more of the same, really.
1: Rosie, do we take the far right seriously enough in this country? Because it may not have broken through in the polls in the same way. But as Aisha says, it's undoubtedly influenced the mainstream or we wouldn't have Suela Braverman as Home Secretary
4: and we wouldn't have Brexit. Um, I think we do. I mean, I, I think if we think back in time when the BMP was having success in getting and um, securing representation in local government, there was a lot of attention paid. And um, I personally am a fan of changing our electoral system. But one thing you have to say about our electoral system is it does make it harder for smaller parties to break through. And I think that is one of the reasons. You know, you need. You need a figure with the charisma at least as some people find him as Nigel Farage although I have to tell you Aisha his rating amongst women were never very high Um, but uh, you need someone with that kind of appeal to a certain segment of voters and you need this exactly um, this issue around having a really clear simple populist message to, 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 to cut through at all.
1: Nadine Doris has written 16 novels set in the Liverpool streets of her childhood, but now she's started a political biography, and who better to eulogise than the man who got her where she is today, the man she'd still love if he backed a JCB into her garden. Yes, The Political Assassination of Boris Johnson is in the works and will be available for 99p on Kindle before you know it. Aisha, there have been several biographies of Johnson, unfortunately. Um, in fact, I'm talking to the author of a new one this week for The Bunker. To my mind, it's Sonia Pennell who conveyed his true moral depravity best. Who would you like to write his bio? Nobody. I'm sick of him. I'm literally <laughs> enough.
2: Although I'm looking forward to reading Seb Payne's book, and I know you're going to be interviewing him, but I'm kind of done. I do think Sonia Pennell's book was brilliant and, you know, she cracked his kind of feelings and you know his his weaknesses and you know his capacity his pathological ability to lie but i just feel like we've got to stop rewarding this
1: awful person with so much attention marie do you think he'll write an autobiography at some point is this a given because it's going to be awful isn't it if he does
3: Oh, I, yeah. Because, yeah I, I can't quite recreate Aisha's uh, reaction, but that is exactly where I stand. By. Even just the idea of him doing that and the media around that would come out like very sincerely makes me want to move back to France. And I don't even like France that much. Like it, Oh, God. Yeah, no, he probably will, won't he? Well, he needs to finish the bloody Shakespeare book first.
1: It will be awful, you know. As I was making love to Carrie in the
3: Ah! office, the
1: call came through
3: that Ukraine had been... My one slightly indiscreet (laughs) gossip, which I've really enjoyed recently, is that apparently uh, since leaving number 10... Uh, Carrie has been complaining about the cost of living crisis and everything's really expensive now.
2: Well, listen, wallpaper is an absolute fortune. Okay, (laughs) look, the struggle is real. The the other madness about this, if we keep rewarding this man with books, I mean, we've already (laughs) had the sort of screenplay. There's going to be Boris Johnson, the film, Boris Johnson, the opera. I mean, it's going to be- the musical. Oh my God, he's going to get his own podcast. He's going to be doing an Edinburgh show. He's going to (laughs) turn into like a
3: brand. We have to stop this- no. So Aisha, you know Hamilton, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Rosie, let's elevate the tone beyond Boris Johnson a bit, and um, and, and talk about really good political biographies. I was trying to think of you know it's a difficult genre, and there are not that many political biographies that really stand out for me. Probably Hugo Young's of, of um, Margaret Thatcher, and but is there is there one that really? Uh, impressed
4: you. Will you let me be naughty and have an autobiography? Yes, of course. Because the thing I've read this year that I absolutely loved and I'd recommend to everyone is Free by Leah Yippie. I don't know if any of you've read no, it. No, no, how dare you? That was going to be my escape route. I'm reading it at the moment. Oh, well, I won't ruin it. it for you, but um, <laughs> it's based on her childhood in um, Albania in the 1980s. And she's a political scientist at the London School of Economics and it's so full of humor and insight about what it is to be free or not in different kinds of societies and i don't want to give away too many spoilers it's just it's the best political book written with humility, humor, incredible intelligence i suspect it's the polar opposite of the um, Nadine Dori Dori's autobiography we've just been describing yes she not is biography no no we don't want to wish that in the world biography <laughs>
1: Um, Aisha, how about you? Have you enjoyed her? her so work? um
2: again, I'm gonna plump for an autobiography, and it's um slightly uh, nepotistic, but it is my former boss, Harriet Harman's um autobiography. And the thing that I think is brilliant about that book is that A, it's about a woman, and most biographies are great, you know, you know, who are the great heroes of politics? They're never sheroes; they're always heroes. There's always men who get written about, normally really crap men that get like sort of written up in politics again and again and again. And this was a story of um, a woman going through politics at a time and it was incredibly rare for women to be in politics. And I think what is great about Harriet's book is that it's not all this self grandizing. and then I went into the table and slammed my my fist down and then had the show and then won the argument of the day. A lot of it is her going... I felt really alone. It was really hard. I wanted to throw in the towel many, many times. And, you know, her lovely late husband, Jack, stopped her and all her kind of feminist friends, you know, provided her with support. And I feel like what's really lovely about that book is it's an honest account of how great politics can be, but how really difficult politics can be, particularly for women, particularly at that time and how lonely politics was for her. And But the lesson is, you know, stick at it and and
1: have a good tribe of people to support you. Well interestingly so far we've only recommended w- books about women um which is which is great. Maria whose biography would you like to write?
3: Oh can I, can I answer the other question as well please I have a really good answer. Yes of course. Thank uh, you. <laughs> um so the autobiography I really enjoyed was Peter Mandelson's which by the way I really recommend the audiobook because he read it. And as Aisha was saying I think entirely correctly the sign of a good autobiography is someone who's had the time to think and be honest with themselves about the good things the bad things etc. So Peter Mandelson Nelson's is the exact opposite of that. <laughs> it is. So if you listen to it, it is I however many hours of his dulcet tones and him going, <sighs> yet again, I was right. No one listen to old Peter. And that is why things went wrong, because no one listens to me, even though I'm right. And it is delightful. There is not an inch of self-reflection in there. I had a lovely time listening to it. Uh, No, which one would I write? So um, it's one of those weird ones which started as a joke, but I think I've managed to meme myself into wanting to do it. Uh, I really want to write a biography of Gavin Williamson. (laughs) Hmm. Well, there are two types of biographies, right? I think that the first one is someone who was just extraordinary and there's enough to say about them you know, to to fill in a type book. But I think there's also a second type, which is using a person to kind of explain a lot of stuff. Um, And I think a Gavin Williamson biography would would be the the latter. So I think that there's so much to say about the past decade, I think, in the Parliamentary Conservative Party, in the relationship between Number 10 and Parliament, about the different splits in the party, and even more widely about how Whip's offices work, how you do parliamentary management, how you don't do it, etc. So I think um, that is a book I would really enjoy writing.
1: Hmm. How about Dominic Cummings? Because he might be a bit like Mandelson.
3: Uh, I, I, I feel like he's kind of, you know, again, similar to Boris. I just never, ever want to hear another word about Dominic Cummings. I am done now. Um, Rosie, is there anybody who deserves to have their biography written, who has who, really been
4: ignored? Oh, I mean, I mean, thinking back to Aisha's I, I point, There are so many women politicians whose biographies should have been written and they've been ignored. And Claire Shorts is an exception. Harriet Harman's an exception. And what you really notice when you read them is that they often take a very collective approach to talking about how they've made change and my view is that leadership's really a collective practice, and this idea of the strong man at the top is completely false. And it's actually how we bring different organizations and individuals together that we make change. So I, I think even though know, there are a myriad unsung women who have been really influential in our politics, and I want to read all of their biographies or autobiographies. Aisha, who would whose biography would you like to write? Okay, there's two people whose
2: biography I'd like to write. The first person is, I think, a real kind of forgotten. Titan in the Summer Conservative Leadership Contest, a man we all want to know. Marie knows she's got it. It is, of course, the elusive figure, Remen Chisty. I want to know what went through Remen's mind when he went, do you know what, I'm going to have that, I'm going to have a crack crack at that. But the second person who I'd love to write the biography for, and this is uh, very much to Rosie's point, is Angela Rayner, because what a cracking Mm -hmm. story Angela Rayner has got. Her background, her chutzpah, her sheer force of character. I mean, she's basically the love child of Barbara Castle and Rizzo from Greece. And you just think, (laughs) you know, bugger off, Boris Johnson. Let's get some more. um, Let's find out about Angela Rayner, because this woman is so interesting.
1: Well, if there are any publishers listening, (laughs) I'm pretty sure that most of us, given the right offer, would be happy to weigh in. Before we go, it's time for our panellists to tell us their escape routes. What have you enjoyed recently that isn't political or isn't very political? Aisha, what have you been up to? So I'm watching White Lotus, the second series, which is absolutely
2: brilliant. And it is set, it's all about kind of really rich, terrible people um, going on holiday and, you know, not being happy and bad things, doing bad things and bad things happening to them, which is really good because I think in a cost of living crisis, we all like to sort of um, feel venomous about rich people having a nice time in Italy. So that is quite kind of good. But what is really frustrating is that um, now TV, and this is sort of a tactic that is happening, they're not letting you binge it you have to wait every week for it and it's I just can't live in a world where I can't binge things and I've got no sense of delayed gratification it's just it's killing me I know
3: but that's why hang on because I'm the same but the the, the thing you have to get used to it's a habit thing so I now consider in my head the release date of a tv series to be the moment the last episode was released because then I can start binging um.
1: but what is the point of streaming if you know you can't binge it does seem strange what's the point of everything if you can't binge
3: Uh, Marie how about you what have you been doing well I was going to say I have been reading this tremendous book called Free by I P, but that was stolen from me I will not be naming the thief Um, no apart from that no okay fine well then considerably lower brow um, so I am re-watching My Guilty Pleasure which is Suits um, the TV show about handsome lawyers doing some lawyering and actually so I would say right. and, and I've been saying this to lots of friends in person so I may as well do it here it is kind of, so it's on Netflix, and it kind of is the the ultimate, yeah, again, sort of like couch potato, it's November, everything feels a bit bleak telly, because it's, you know, it, it will not engage your brain in a significant way at any point, but it is still just about well-written and well-done enough that you do not feel entirely ashamed of w- watching it, which is actually a sweet spot, I would argue, that few TV shows really get, and it goes on and on and on as well, so there's lots to do there, so yeah, so there you go. A I mean. bit like Downton Abbey, but, you know, tell us, is Meghan Markle
1: any good at it? Can she- she act?
3: Uh, so I think I'm kind of the wrong person to ask because I, I, I honest to God, could not tell the difference between good acting and bad acting, which is great for me that, you know, I'm a great audience, but, um, but no, I, I, I don't know if it's a weird neurodivergent thing, but I just, I just can't tell the difference.
1: Okay. Um, Rosie,
4: how about you? Well, with my daughters, I binge watched Enola Holmes one and two over the weekend, and I hadn't even heard of it. And I was, it was, I just loved it. Cheesy romance. But at the end, I mean, they they had the photos of the original women who were striking in the match factories. And I found that really moving and made me want to cry. Um, But also at the end, I just thought, there's so much material out this, like this now, where you have got the historical stories of women um, or narratives that really twist the traditional plots. And it just shows 20 years ago, they wouldn't have been made and the world's really changed. Um, so if you if you want a really chilled night, but with a tiny little bit of um, hist- historical fact, Enola Holmes was a very gratifying watch for me. Well, in a similar vein,
1: in a way, I went to the Alexander the Great exhibition at the British Library on Saturday, which uh, I was basically taken along to by my 11 year old, who is very into Alexander the Great and it's it's it was actually fascinating i mean they have some great stuff big very old books as you would expect at the british library but also some tablets that are you know, literally two and a half thousand years old, and the first account of a battle which blows your mind somewhat. But the thing that really struck me about Alexander the Great is how he just became everybody's property and he became whoever you wanted him to be. And if he'd invaded your country, you invented an entire narrative that in- <laughs> that meant that he was, you know, re- literally related to you and had always been destined to rule your country in the first place. And this seemed to me to have a, you know, a big a lot to say, a lot to speak to the current tendency to confirmation bias, where, you know, if you want to believe something badly enough, you believe it. So I recommend it. It's good. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another episode. Don't forget the new series of Origin Story and Doomsday Watch are both out now. Remember, if you want to help, oh God, what now? You can always back us on Patreon. You'll get the podcast early without adverts, exclusive merchandise and a shout out on the show. So here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you to some of our lovely backers.
3: Thank you from me to Siobhan Corrie, Simon Barker and Cindy Jones. And a big
2: thank
1: you from me to Duncan Lovell, Joel Austin and Terence Sutcliffe. And thanks so much from me to Shelley Hopper, Jan Marek-Vodznitsa and David Worthington. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Roz Taylor with Aisha Hazarika and Marie LeConte. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieburn, and the producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerberts. Assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producers Jacob Jarvis, group editors Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production.